When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And welcome to the Invested Podcast. We're back. Um, yeah, shoot. It's been a wild, wild, wild time out there yeah. in the investing world, in the world world, in the real world. It's been um, a wild and time. And we thought we would... <laughs> it's been, all over. I was going to say it's been a wild time for us. It's been a wild time in the world. Like we've been... Yeah. all over the place and uh and i'm just glad to be back every time we have to take a little break from the podcast i get a little like i start to miss it i miss our it's like a touchstone of like what's going on with my investing practice and i i just love it i miss it when i don't talk to you about investing for a while and for some reason that probably takes like psych- psychological analysis or like pure laziness. We don't really talk that much about investing off the podcast because there's so much other stuff going on all the time, like in our regular lives. So it's such a great, for me, it's such a great uh, excuse slash like oomph push to get there and like do my little practice with you here on the podcast. Well, thank you. And I love doing this with you. It um, it makes me focus down on the really important questions that are floating around out there. And I thought what we could talk about right now, given the state of the world, um, is how you invest with this um, so much uncertainty. Yeah. How, how does one invest without without being certain about where things are going, right? Right. I think, you know... <laughs> Since we last recorded, there have been massive world events happening, most of all the war in Ukraine, and the markets have been responding and being very, very up and down, very uncertain. And that's been the question that I've had front of mind, like as a long-term investor, what's my practice in this? What, what's, front, what's, like, what's my plan? What's, like, am I paying attention to these things? Am I ignoring them? Am I somewhere in the middle? What what do you do? Well, I think the most important thing to realize is this kind of investing practice that we do, that I call rule one investing, that is following Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, great investors in the past, has been extremely successful in the most extreme world conditions. I mean, we're talking worldwide depression, is where this started. This is this practice was begun like when Graham in the 1930s with Ben Graham, and it 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 accelerated in its effectiveness through World War II, through Korean War, uh, through you know Warren Buffett picking it up, and all through the whole um, explosion of inflation and the Vietnam War in the 60s and the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this has been extremely effective. <clears throat> this kind of environment, amazingly, and a bit, I guess, a, a little bit sadly, does extremely well 
when you mean an uncertainty rises. Uncertainty. Okay. Mm-hmm. When uncertainty rises, it, even when the certainty that everything is bad starts to take over. In other words, mm-hmm. right now we're in uncertainty. What's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Um, but some people are saying we're already have begun World War Three. We've begun the new Cold War. Um, we're headed for a deep recession. Ray Dalio is signaling even huge depression, hundred year long depression, hundred year depression, right? Um, Ray Dalio signaling a hundred year depression. Yeah, I mean the That's whole. That's one I haven't read. Oh really? That's no. his whole story right now. He doesn't say it. It's just the outcome. <laughs> the outcome of the one hundred year shift in the long credit cycle is war and depression. That's that's the oh. the major downside that we're looking right into the teeth of. <clears throat> and the closer we get to war and depression, the less likely it is that governments around the world will do the things that they have to do to keep us out of it. Much more likely that they'll do what they've done almost exclusively in history and throw us into more chaos until you get to a point where the only certainty is that everything is horrible. And in that environment, this style of investing is stunningly wonderful. It is fabulous. It is the way to invest. So that's the good news, I think. Um, the reason it is is because the price of things, the price of very specific things gets to be ridiculously low. As, mm. as the level of fear grows, the price of wonderful assets becomes super cheap, mm. right? Mm. So that's, that's the thing that happened in the Depression. Assets became incredibly cheap. That assets like land, real estate, um, stocks, businesses became very, very cheap and stayed very, che- very cheap until uh, they started to recover midway through World War II. And then, mm. of course, they were on a, from that point on a cycle upward that lasted until the mid 1960s. <clears throat> and then again, another period of war, uncertainty, fear, inflation um, takes over and the stock market did nothing. From 1965 until 1983, the stock market rate of return was zero for about 18 years. And yet during this time period is when Ben Graham or sorry, when uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger made stunning fortunes. I mean, just phenomenal fortunes. So historically, we do best when things are worst. This, in Nicholas Taleb's words, right, the guy who wrote the book Anti-Fragile, um, is, in his words, this is anti-fragile investing. This is the investing style that does the best when there is the most chaos. <clears throat> and it only makes sense. It's when we want specific wonderful companies, mostly if there's no fear around those companies, everybody knows they're wonderful. Why would they sell them cheap, right? And they don't, unless there's a problem. And if that because problem they, starts to be... Yeah, yeah, because they have to, right? They have to. They, they've got to get away from the problem because of the nature of their level of success. The, the people we're talking about, of course, are the broker, sorry, the uh, in institutional fund managers that control 80, 85% of the money in the stock market. And that money is 
managed in a way that's very short term because the money gets taken away if that particular fund manager doesn't keep up with his peer group or his index. The money is pulled away by the pension funds that are investing or the banking funds or the insurance funds. They just take it away and they give it to somebody who is keeping up with it. And so everybody on Wall Street understands that the idea of investing is very, very simple. You, you, ideally, you buy great, wonderful things when they're super cheap and you hold on to them. But that is not how you play the game if you are an institutional fund manager and you want to keep your job. You have to keep up with the indexes. And to do that, you got to buy things all the time and change them around. Fidelity Magellan, I, I, I was on a plane once sitting next to somebody from who was an a, uh, analyst at Fidelity Magellan, and he said their average long-term hold is three months. So mm -hmm. if you're in an environment where you have to change your portfolio every 90 days, there's no way that you can take advantage of of fear that happens. You're you're part of what's going down like a brick and you don't have the capital to invest if you're not out of the market and you're not out of the market because you're being judged every 90 days. Mm -hmm. So the so, way this all works so well in our favor is that you get a combination of 85% of the market running for the hills because 85% of the market is running for the hills. That's the reason they're leaving is because everybody's leaving. And we're in cash, waiting to take advantage of that. That's why it works for us. Yeah. Okay, wait. <laughs> so you're saying just sort of on a global level, it works because as prices come down, people who are ready with cash can take advantage of those lower prices. Right. I mean, yeah, in theory. But in real life of individual company stock long-term investing, one must pick exact companies to purchase. Mm -hmm. And depending on our personal circumstances, I mean, it's like we don't, most of us don't live in a bubble away from that level of uncertainty. Like, a lot of us may be really worried about our families or our jobs or how that's going to affect the company we own or we work for. So it's not just like, oh, okay, like I've got this bundle of cash over here and I'll just put it into anything. Like I think part of it is what companies are going to do well out of this. Like what companies are those anti-fragile companies that you're talking about? And that's the crux of this investing process. And I think it's almost like you have to be 10 times more selective to find a company that's really going to be able to take such a difficult environment that's not just difficult for investors, but it's difficult for the actual companies and do well and know that your investment's going to be at least relatively safe. So no, you don't have to be 10 times more selective. You just have to be as selective. <clears throat> In other words, the, the things that I've taught you that matter about picking a business are exactly the things that would pick businesses that are good for this, that are anti-fragile. That's, um, that's, these companies are by definition yeah, anti-fragile. I got right? you. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the number one criteria that we've started with from the very beginning of this podcast 
was Charlie's four elements of great investing, which is yeah. you have to understand the business. It has to have a durable competitive advantage. It has to have good management and you have to buy it with a margin of safety. So if we apply that right now or any other time for that matter, we are going to end up with a group of wonderful businesses. If you understand the business, where the where the wheels fall off the wagon for people is that and where their their own discomfort and fear grows that they're going to fail at this mission of, of investing is that they don't really understand the businesses. That's that's really important. Um, like you don't understand the pitfalls that a business could go through due to like the falling dollar or the falling euro or global political uh, sanctions, for example. Well, I'm thinking more that you just don't understand the business. It's just, <laughs> you know, it's that simple and it's that hard. So, um, so, so here's the, the, go ahead. Yeah. So here's the, here's the issue is that you have to understand the business and that's where people fail. We have this quality in us of absolute laziness, lack of discipline, hubris. We always think we know more than we do, or we think we know enough, right? And the, the fact I of the matter know, is- Oh man. Okay, go ahead. Finish that, your thought. That, you have to dig in. You have to dig into the business. All right, of so- Of course. Pick a business that's a wonderful business. Apple Computer is a wonderful business. No, no one is going to say that Apple Computer is not a wonderful business. It has a gigantic ecosystem moat. It has secrets, right? It's got an operating system nobody knows how to make. It's It's got the biggest brand in the world. It's got a huge net promoter score, right? I'm wonderful business. I'm laughing to myself because I've many times said that Apple was not a wonderful business. And I oh, was no. so wrong. I was so wrong. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. So I've owned Apple for years, right? And so it's just, it's this wonderful business. Now then, what, why, what, why is it wonderful? Gigantic moat, really, really sophisticated, great management team. Okay, great. Wonderful business. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Not crazily difficult to understand, really. I think if you dive into it, you'll understand it. I happen to have the advantage of having worked with these guys over time. And I understand that business pretty well because of being in Silicon Valley and all that stuff during the old heyday of Steve Jobs. And um, and so I feel comfortable with that. That makes it part of my circle of confidence, part of what mm -hmm. I feel I understand well. And then <clears throat> assuming I'm right, it's a wonderful business, then all I have to do is make sure I understand what it's worth. Right? And I can be wrong about that and still make a lot of money. So, yeah. <laughs> because I, I mean, borrowed it a margin. I really safety. struggle with this idea that, and we've like debated this so much. Like, oh, you just have to, you know, do the work, and you'll have the answer. Or, um, you know, just don't like miss anything, and you'll be fine. Well, there's no, always stuff come that we miss. 
That's what I heard you say. Oh, well. No? I don't. So Apple's a great example because I like thoroughly didn't like Apple years ago right after Jobs died and everyone was like excited to buy the stock and said it was going to like keep growing. It was going to be a great company without him. And I was so skeptical that they had a moat because of what had happened the last time that he left Apple. And I thought that the same thing would probably happen again and a different computer company would show up and disrupt the market and take away Apple's moat. I was super mm-hmm. wrong about that. That is not what happened. But that, I think, was a reasonable view at the time of Apple's prospects. It wasn't correct, but it wasn't ridiculous. But it wasn't so, ridiculous, and it wouldn't have hurt your investment in Apple at all. But I mean, you would have made more money if you jumped in then. <clears throat> but later, when it was clear that those things had been wrong you were wrong about much of that it became very obvious that that was wrong you could have bought apple just a few years ago at better than a 10 cap purchase price was it an 11 cap you're right oh i'm loving that okay so this was a failure oh let me think this out so this was me one making my decision then instead of reevaluating that decision when information changed, I, sorry for my voice, by the way, it's my inhaler and it just makes it so scratchy and I hate it, but you sound fine. it's just the no way it is. No, you're good. Um, <clears throat> so what I should have done when that happened, and I had conversations with people about this, not just you, multiple people about Apple and like what was happening there and you know, had I been wrong about it and it seemed that I had been wrong and what did everybody think? But I didn't take that next step of thoroughly going through the process again and decide. It was total confirmation bias. Total confirmation bias. Yeah, there bias. you go. Good, good, good insight. Good Absolutely. insight. I'm so glad we talked about this because I had not gone through this thought process so precisely. Yeah, so you're right. So like you can make a come up with a evaluation, a view, a summary of the moat of a company. What do you call that? Make your prognosis, your hypothesis about what's going yeah, to happen. Yeah, your thesis or something. Your thesis. Your story. I call it a story. Yeah. And then see if you were right or wrong for a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, look at look at what's changing in the but world right now. be a lot more conscious about it than <clears throat> I was. Like, that's something I can change about my process and make sure that I, like, have a list maybe of companies that I've put in the too hard pile or the no pile and make sure I go back and check them maybe like once a year. It's not a bad idea. I mean, honestly, we, we tend to put things in the, in the pile that says no, and then not look at them again. Totally. And that's probably something we should, we should explicitly make part of our training. It's just, just realize that's something that's easy to do and then never look at it again. And you miss these opportunities and you've already done a lot of work. Exactly. We've already done a lot of work, and it's pretty easy to update that work. Absolutely. Like, let's take the world the way it's sitting right now. Um, Take a quick snapshot and and look at at our investment through that lens for a second. Like, what has happened that's changed the world dramatically in the last couple of months is that um, NATO has been forever unwilling to 
um, support a non-NATO country and because they're not part of the military alliance. And now NATO has decided to support a non-NATO country, Ukraine, despite the fact that it's not part of the NATO alliance, and there's no obligation by NATO. Um, and now that's pushing the world closer to a world war as Russia is pushing forward its agenda in Ukraine. So that's a big deal. Um, that changes maybe what's going to happen down the road in lots of different investments because, not so much just because of, of the conflict, but because of how different countries are responding to the conflict, particularly the United States. The United States is responding to this conflict with severe restrictions on uh, Russian enterprise. And the impact of that was to have BlackRock's Russia fund virtually disappear overnight, like just go to zero. That the United States has now- Well, because Russia suspended trading on its exchange. Right, so all of a sudden it's gone, right? And so what we've started to realize is a risk that we didn't really anticipate. And that is the risk, we call it legislative risk in general, but it's generally mm -hmm. the risk of a government doing something that causes your investments to go to zero. Mm -hmm. That is a shocker, right? It's like, wait a second. Um, if that could happen between the United States and Russia, isn't there a similar problem that could occur between the United States and, and China? If, for example, China decided that it was time to make good on its promise to reintegrate Taiwan, into China and the United States responded the way it's responding to Ukraine or even more aggressively, then could the United States simply make it illegal to own a, a Chinese stock? And the answer is yes, they could. Could China just simply shut down its stock markets? The answer is yes, they could. In other words, there is now a potential in the world for a catastrophic event that can wipe out your, your investment portfolio if it's across a, a boundary uh, of a military conflict. Yeah. That we didn't see coming. It's oh, quite yeah. interesting. And it, it really proves the risk of an individual company investment being not just that company, but really, I would call it investing in that country. Some people describe it as more just exposing to the risk of that country. But for me, it's really choosing to put money into that country. And is that a this safe is, this is location? extremely frustrating for, for us as investors. Because it's if we're looking because at... Because right before this, when Charlie Munger did his Daily Journal talk, and we were just talking about how he said, I do not feel comfortable investing in Russia. That's a place I'm not going to put money. Right. Boom, like, like made a good call. Here we go. yeah. and, and now well, I wonder how does Charlie feel about investing in China? Right? Yeah. I think he has substantial be a capital in question China. question at the Berkshire meeting, I bet. I wow, know. man. Because there's all sorts of ramifications to this thing that are, are very, very interesting. So, to your point, right? That, oh, this is very complicated. We have to really work hard. Maybe it's not so easy. And my response was it's the same as it's always been. Understand the business, understand the moat, understand the management, understand the margin of safety. That is, both of us are right, okay? Uh, 
-hmm. So the world has definitely changed. And part of the problem with the way the world is changing is that the United States is printing dollars to solve its monetary issue, to solve its fiscal issue, I guess is what you'd say. We don't have, we can't tax enough money to pay for all the things we want to pay for. So we're just printing dollars. We're right now printing dollars at $180 billion a month is just being the running the printing press. And they intend to print even more than that. Um, even though they've started to increase interest rates, they haven't started tapering the amount of money they're buying every month. And as a result, the amount of money they're printing. As a result, the US dollar is becoming really questionable as the world's reserve currency. Really a big question because of course, printing money more than the wealth that's being created or the productivity of that country just means inflation. If you were to play a monopoly game and the banker just gave everybody an extra $500 bill, the prices of properties would go up. Everybody would bid. Okay, the same thing happens here. It doesn't make those properties more valuable per se. It just means the price is higher and that mm -hmm. is inflation. And that's what we're experiencing now in the US at the rate of about 8% headline inflation. That's what the government says it is. But if you calculate inflation based back the way they did it in 1980, um, where they look at just a basket of goods and services, particularly mm -hmm. critical ones that you need, food and energy, Inflation is running 15% in the United States. So it's somewhere between 8 and 15, depending on who you talk to. Either but of those eight, numbers eight are Eight is a deadly. real number that they're putting it's out real. there. Yeah, 7.9. Wow. 7.9. Okay. So this is a deadly, deadly number. I mean, think about it. At 8% inflation, the value, the buying power of your money is cut in half in just nine years. It's terrifying. It's That's literally horrible. how we started this whole investing craziness of mine. And right. You're telling me about how terrifying inflation is. Okay. Well, then now move it to what's probably the real rate, which is 15. And your buying power of your dollar is going to be cut in half in five years. That starts to get real personal. Yeah. No kidding. Five years. That's nothing. That's, you know, you go to college and you graduate and you come out. Well, by the way, if you were to start college incur a tremendous amount of debt right up front and come out five years later having inflation cut the value of your money in half, you're paying back dollars you borrowed with 50 cents. This is going to work out great. <laughs> and in fact, that's one the of the things. Loan crisis. Oh my God. That is one of the things that is actually considered a reasonably effective, aggressive strategy is to borrow a lot of money just as you go into massive hyperinflation because you'll be able to pay it back with very cheap money. And, and, and so if you've stacked up a lot of debt, you could pat yourself on the back right now. You're looking genius, right? As long as you can keep the interest rates low, you're, you've, you've done as a brilliant As long as you thing. can pay it with your reduced buying power salary going on. Well, it doesn't matter. Your reduced buying power salary is only affecting food, gasoline. So obviously, well, I guess it matters if you don't have any money left over. Yeah, you got to buy those things. You got to have something left over. But you are paying back super cheap dollars. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing that. People are turning down jobs. I mean, there's a there's a warehouse that we work with. They can't get employees. They're offering $21 an hour. They can't get anybody. 
So this is just, well, there's probably you know, this is just bigger reason the, than just that. No, that. it's just that oh, there are that. jobs going everywhere. I'm going to let that one go by. There's okay, 10 million jobs talk, out there. Let's talk next time about the inflation affecting the investing choices. Okay, we'll talk that because knowing what to buy in a time of very heightened inflation will make the difference between really successful investing and not successful investing. Exactly. And here's a clue. Big moat companies are very good in times of inflation. Okay. All right. Till next time. Clue Yak received. about that. Okay. Thanks, everybody. See you guys later. Time to go play. Bye. Bye.